everyone we know is going to die someday. But in our modern world, we're so separated from death. We have come to fear the death that we once revered. Nobody is taught how to have a reverent walk to the last chapter of life. Prayer is the medium of miracles. So do not hesitate to pray with a person who is um, dealing with physical illness. Pray for their healing. If someone has a meaningful death, their family is more likely to have a meaningful grief. We've been gifted this precious, beautiful, and perfect and fleeting life. What will we make of it? Welcome to this Commune Masterclass on Dying with Grace. This program explores our relationship to our own mortality and how planning for and contemplating our own inevitable death can help us find more joy, more meaning, and be more present while we're still here living. We'll learn how we can prepare to die with dignity and how we can support others in navigating this universal transition as well. We'll learn about changes we need to reify in our current healthcare system when it comes to palliative care. And we'll touch on the spiritual dimensions of death, its unpredictability and its inevitability. This masterclass features excerpts from some of the incredible courses that we have available here at Commune, including David Kessler's Help for the Hurting Heart, Dr. Zach Bush's course, Vital Health, Marianne Williamson's program, Teaching the Teachers, and a course led by yours truly on Stoic Meditations. To try all these programs, sign up for a 14-day free trial of Commune membership at onecommune.com trial. And we'll begin with a lesson from David Kessler on caring for a dying loved one. David Kessler is a leading expert on grief and loss. His experience with thousands of people on the edge of life and death has taught him the secrets to living a purposeful and fulfilled life, even in the wake of life's tragedies. He's the author of six books, including the recent bestseller, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, he has also co-authored two books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, including On Grief and Grieving, which updated her five stages of grief. So without further delay, I give you David Kessler. In this video, we're going to talk about caring for a loved one who has died. Some of this may help you if you're dealing with someone who's seriously ill or has a chronic illness, but a lot of the information is geared if your loved one is dying. One of the sayings you often hear is, believe the diagnosis, but not the prognosis. None of us actually know when someone's going to die. But there are things we can learn about that can help us. First of all, this is so helpful because one of the things that my teacher, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, really wanted in me is there's a lot of people in our modern world who are um, experts on end-of-life care and palliative care and hospice, and there's other people who are grief experts. And it was important to Elizabeth that I know both. So you'll see I have books on death and dying and books on grief. And the reality is that the death shapes the grief. The death shapes the grief. 
So I want you to think about this. If someone has a meaningful death, their family is more likely to have a meaningful grief. If someone has a complicated death, their family is more likely to have a complicated grief. So for example, in my lectures, I've had it where someone on one side of the room raises their hand and says, my father died last year of this type of cancer and we were all gathered around him. And it was so profound, that moment of death, and we all shared that, it was so meaningful. And someone on the other side of the room said, our loved one died from that type of cancer too. And it was the most traumatic experience we ever had. Both people died alike, but one family experienced it as traumatic, the other one as meaningful. And a lot of it is, we don't even know what death looks like anymore. We've lost that sense of what the end of life looks like. It's interesting, Americans sometimes feel like death is optional. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. That's, that's not the reality for all of us. I say, you know, unfortunately, the death rate is 100%. And everyone we know is going to die someday. But in our modern world, we're so separated from death. I can remember when I was a kid, just, you know, my parents were driving me to school and we'd be behind a hearse or you'd be doing something and there'd be a hearse going by. In the world, decades ago, hearses were always around us. When was the last time you were driving to work or somewhere and were behind a hearse? It doesn't happen in our modern world. Now a hearse just goes from the uh, chapel to the mortuary. The dead move around our cities now in white unmarked vans. The next time you're behind a white unmarked van, you're behind a hearse. And there's a cost to not seeing this experience. If you want to see death these days, you got to go to the movies, you got to watch it on Netflix, on something streaming. That's where you see death. We've sort of tried to sanitize our Western world and we don't have this experience and we lost something with that. I can remember growing up when the hearse would come by, if the electrical lineman was working on the um, electrical pole and a hearse was coming or a funeral, he would come down off the pole and stand at the side of the street and take his hat off and pay respect. If someone was mowing their lawn and the hearse went by, they would stop mowing and stand there, you know, giving attention to it. We've lost all of that in our modern world. And because of that, we don't know what this dying experience looks like. We don't know how to be there with our loved ones. Woody Allen has a quote that he says, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And that's actually an interesting concept that it's a little true. We sort of know we're going to die someday. And the dying part, we may be okay with when it happens, but the lead up scares us, right? The lead up scares us. We usually want three things from our death. When we've looked at this, people say they want three things. They want their death to be sudden, pain-free, and in their sleep. 
sudden, pain-free, and in their sleep. The interesting thing about that is even though we think that's what we want, when we've gone back and interviewed people who were dying of cancer, and we said to them, if you could go back to the day of diagnosis and die that night, pain-free, suddenly, in your sleep, would you have wanted it? And close to 100% say no. When we're healthy, we're like, take me out of the game quick. But there seems to be a value in the wind down of life that we don't get. And I'm a big believer in wording. The wording we use can also cause additional suffering. So you hear us talking about Jane failed her chemo treatment or um, Bill failed his treatment. I always say Jane didn't fail her treatment. Her treatment failed her. He didn't fail the treatment. The treatment failed him. Or they succumbed to their illness or they lost the battle. Is that our reality? We have a good life and then 100% of us are going to lose the final battle? Or can we look at it that this life will wind down? We, we sort of love the story and the poetry is this rage against the dying of the light. None of us want to die. None of us want our loved ones to die. But could you imagine a beautiful sunset if you went out and raged against the dying of the sun? There's a natural sunset every day. And there's a natural sunset to our life. And when that natural sunset to our life comes, maybe there's nothing to rage against. Do we really all want to die angry? So think about this. And like I said, our wording is so important. I can remember seeing um, Edie Falco interviewed years ago. Edie Falco, the actress who plays Nurse Jackie and was Camilla on The Sopranos. She had, um, had been dealing with cancer and she's on this interview and the interviewer says to us, says to her, so you're a winner, you beat the cancer. So tell us what it feels like to be a winner. And she says, listen, I'm not a winner. I had a cancer that was very easy to treat and a very mild cancer. There's people who have very aggressive cancers that are hard to treat. I don't want to make myself a winner because it makes them a loser. And we're all in this together. So think about how it's great if we're survivors and aren't we all survivors, but we don't want some of us to be winners and some of us to be losers either. One of the things we mentioned before that I want to go a little deeper into is anticipatory grief. It's the grief before the death. It feels like the beginning of the end. Our loved one now has a diagnosis and we're so afraid of losing them. All we can think about is their death and their death can rob us of the precious time we have left. Anticipatory grief is very, very normal. We may feel guilty about having it. You know, I can remember working in the hospital settings and going into the ICU waiting room and a family sitting in there and I'm talking to the family and 
the family members are talking about, will this treatment work or will that treatment work? And then someone goes, I can't imagine a world without dad. And another family will go, well, fine. Thanks a lot with your negative thinking. Now he's probably going to die because of you, right? Where's your hope? And so we think like it's almost positive thinking turned on us that we think because we said the anticipatory grief out loud, it's going to happen. And the reality is that's not how it works. You know, and people often feel like in long chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's or other things, when people have been grieving all along, they go, I've had so long with anticipatory grief, I'm going to be fine when it happens. And they're surprised they still have a lot of grief, even though it's maybe been a long chronic illness. They still, it's not like homework, you can't turn it in early. It's interesting when I've watched over the years, families meet with physicians when their loved ones at the end of life. And what I've noticed is the families that sit down and hear the diagnosis and hear it's a diagnosis that's probably going to result in their loved one's death. The family that says, no, you've got to save her, doctor. We're going to fire you and get another doctor. She can't die of this. He cannot die now. They have such a harder time later in the death and in their grief. Whereas the families who sit with the doctor and say, we don't want this. We wanted more time. We're so heartbroken it's happening now. And what can we do to make the most of our time together? How can we make the most of whatever time we have left? Are the families that actually have a more beautiful experience of a death as well as the grief afterwards? Because they've already come to this knowing no one lives forever. We always want more. We're never going to want it to be our loved one's time. And let's not waste our precious time, if this is it, by being in a hallway Googling cures instead of sitting with our loved one, holding their hand as they die. I want to give you some practical information on end-of-life care just so you understand this. We often hear about palliative care and hospice, and I want you to understand what those two models are. First of all, palliative care is a type of care that's really growing now in our hospitals. Palliative care is care that happens inside the hospital for when someone has a serious illness. Hospice care usually happens outside of the hospital. Hospice care is usually when you're in the last six months to year of your life. Palliative care is often in the last five years of life. In hospice, when you come uh, and begin hospice care, we often ask that you have tried all the curative treatments and you understand there is no more cure. Many times in palliative care, people are still trying the curative treatments. They're still trying the chemo, the radiation. So we want people, even though um, this illness may result in your death, we still, if you're having curative treatments, want you to get palliative care in the hospital to have additional support. As I mentioned, 
Hospice is very home-based. Palliative care, very hospital-based. Hospice is a team. It's a medical director, the physician. It is a nurse that comes to your home. It's a nurse's aide. It's a clergy. It's volunteers. Palliative care in the hospital is usually a palliative care physician, a palliative care nurse, and they work with the rest of the hospital team. So I just want you to understand both those models in case they come up. I also want you to know two things. People think hospice, oh, that's a death sentence. First of all, if you go on hospice and a new cure was announced, you can go off hospice and go get that new cure. Second, if you go on hospice and you're doing well or you plateau, you can go off hospice. So just know it can be very fluid. People think, oh my gosh, if we go on hospice and there's some amazing thing that comes out, now we're stuck, right? So, and hospice in no way hastens death. In fact, studies have shown uh, people who have palliative care in hospice actually live longer with their symptoms controlled well. So they're two important assets when your loved one is sick. When we're thinking about a serious illness, especially one our loved one may die from, we struggle with a couple of concepts, hope and miracles. So I wanna take a moment and talk about hope and miracles. So hope always changes. And I think of hope as keeping suffering in check. There's different phases of hope. We may initially hope for a cure. We may then hope there's a treatment. We hope our loved one's life is gonna be prolonged. Then we may hope for a peaceful death. We may hope we're there with them. We may hope that there's an afterlife that we meet again. My experience is hope doesn't go away. It only changes. And I think about having hope is so important. And we never want to take anyone's hope away. It's interesting. I often ask people, what are you hoping for? You know, it's interesting as we talk to physicians and nurses, I'm always trying to teach them to respect the patient, the family's hope. Many times they don't know how to even have language around this hope. I often talk to people about, I wish I had a magic wand and could change this, or I hope there is a cure someday. And I'm so saddened that we don't have one to offer you now in this situation or I wish we could do more research on this and find a different answer that your loved one isn't going to die. But sometimes the research is clear around some illnesses and it never means that we know how long someone's gonna live because we all respond to life and illness differently. So I do think about as you work with your loved one getting treated. One of the models that's often used is this idea of benefit versus burden. Every treatment has a benefit and a burden. And so you wanna look at that. So I'll give you some examples. Let's say something like breast cancer. Breast cancer, there is a burden that your loved one is going to have to get chemo and maybe some radiation, and the burden is they're gonna be sick for a while. 
The benefit outweighs it. They're going to live for years longer. High benefit, low burden. Something like pancreatic cancer. The reality of that is different. We might have the burden is your loved one's going to be very sick for a long time and they get just a few months to live. So sometimes depending on where their cancer is, how bad it is, how much it's spread, to look at benefits versus burdens. That can be a helpful model. We always want to prolong life. We want treatments that prolong life. We don't want treatments that prolong suffering. You don't want your loved one to be here in pain longer. Another concept I want to bring up is we often go into this concept of, well, you know, I had a neighbor who had this and, and they lived for, you know, 30 years or I had this. Or, you know, he was in the hospital once before and they said he was going to die and, you know, he lived for 10 years. That was a different person. This is your loved one. Or I understand that your loved one was sick years ago. That was then, this is now. You know, we have to look at ourselves individually and in this moment and to not make sure we're fighting reality because if we're fighting reality, we're losing precious time that we can have with our loved one. I often have discussions with people about hope and miracles. I'll say, my hope for you is that you can make the most of this time. My hope for you is that you can have a peaceful death. I don't mind asking people, I'll say to them, if a cure and treatment isn't possible, what are you hoping for? I'll say that to people who are dying. If a cure is not possible, what are you hoping for? They'll often have things they're still hoping for. You'd be surprised how hope continues to exist. Sometimes I'll tell people the miracle I'll see. Even in situations where I'll, I'll say something like, the miracle I see is you have a family fighting out there over how you should be treated. This person wants you to do this. That person wants you to do that. Your family loves you so much, they're all fighting over how to save you. To me, that's a modern day miracle. The modern day miracle is that you've been healthy for this long or that you've made it for this long. Maybe the miracle of healing isn't going to be of the body. Maybe it's going to be of your soul. Maybe this experience of being on this life in this time has been the miracle. Even though this is a challenging topic to both think and talk about, we learned from David that being informed about the natural process of dying will really help us when we do find ourselves making decisions with and for dying loved ones. The way the death process happens impacts the grieving process. David emphasized that when we're weighing the benefits and risks of treatment options, it's so important to consider the dying person's quality of life in the remaining time that they have. Now, sometimes treatments might not be worth trying, which can be really hard to accept. There's a lot to explore on this topic. We're only touching the surface here. Now, one important consideration is what's known as the graying of America 
which refers to the fact that the American population is becoming progressively older. Hence, there will be a significant need for the kind of high-quality end-of-life care that David has just talked about. We need to consider shifting from a model that ensures health and survival at all costs to one of enabling well-being as the death process unfolds. So as we're thinking about our own deaths and how we'll support the deaths of our loved ones, it's important to also keep in mind our wider community and how we might support transformation at a systemic level. It starts with us and how we plan for and approach death. If you found that lesson from David Kessler helpful, well then please consider enrolling in his 10-day course, Help for the Hurting Heart, with a free commune membership trial. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. In his course, David guides you through the grieving process in a way that leaves you feeling at peace and free to create a life of meaning after your loss. While you can grieve more than the loss of a loved one, let's say a breakup, a job loss, ending a friendship, for example, it's important to learn how to honor and attend to your grief in a way that heals what hurts while attempting to let go of guilt, anger, and what-ifs. You can live a happy and fulfilled life even after life's most painful experiences. In this next section, we'll be hearing from Dr. Zach Bush about his experience working in the healthcare system and how he concluded that many of the medical interventions he was using to keep people alive was actually robbing them of their sacred death. Zach is a triple board certified physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. Here's Zach's perspective on our relationship with death. It was early on in my hospital work at the University of Virginia. I was uh, probably in my third year of residency or something like that. And once you're a senior resident in the ICUs, you're running those ICUs. And, you know, the, the attending physicians will come in for an hour, two or three in the morning to round with the team, round, talk about the patients. But the rest of the 24-hour period, you are really running those ICUs. And you know every few minutes, something else is happening in those ICUs. Critical medical medicine, uh, medicine changes, drug changes, IV drip lines need change rates. Somebody's in congestive heart failure suddenly. It's always chaos control in those ICUs. And I freaking loved it. I loved the adrenaline rush of it. I loved the ability to be working with drugs and tools that could change physiology in a split second. I felt like a god. I could choose whose heart rate would be at which level by the rate of a drip that I would pour into their vein. Everything was controlled because we had taken away all autonomy from the biology of our patients. We had tubes in every orifice. We have literally rectal tubes to pull the stool out of their colon. We've got catheters into their bladder to pull the urine out of them. We've got you know central lines into their, their giant vena cava uh, garden hose of a blood vessel going into their heart. We've got our, a, a massive cannula in their neck to, to measure arterial blood gas and uh, chemistries in real time. We've got a tube down their throat taking away their ability to breathe and taking that over on a respirator machine. We've got drugs turned on to make sure their brain is shut down so they're not conscious of the horror that they're currently living in. I couldn't see all of that humanitarian crisis because the metrics for success that I had been given 
were blood pressure, blood sugar, ins and outs of fluids, the amount of you know uh, sodium and potassium in the in the blood chemistry in the morning, the glucose level. These were the metrics of success, and I felt so smart and powerful, and in fact effective as a physician when I made all those numbers look right. That worked for the first year or two, but by the time I'd been there, through that a few cycles and realized by the, by the sixth, eighth rotation through the ICUs, I was starting to see the same patients who were bouncing in and out of the hospital, back in the same horrific state, and then we would pound on them for days or weeks to get them back to some sort of autonomous physiology to get them discharged again, and then they would bounce back in again. And every time they came back in, their, their whole situation was even more horrific and amped up and multi-organ failure and the rest. But the journey that was really intense was watching the toll on their families, watching children come in month after month, watching their parents go through this horrific experience, never touched by a human hand unless it had a latex glove, unawares, drugged to the point where they're unawares of human speech. They're in a complete stupor. Watching this wear on families over time, I could see psychosis arise in family members after they're in and out of the ICU every day trying to advocate for their loved one, trying to be present. They start going psychotic. They start getting paranoid. They start getting abusive back towards the staff or they start getting hopeless and depressed. It was too much for the human psyche to hold. And so I started to kind of reevaluate my metrics of success. And in that third year, and then leading into my subsequent year of teaching when I was a chief resident, I started to give myself space to, to see it from a different angle, to start to see this whole ICU journey from the perspective of the patient, perspective of the family with that patient, that loved that patient, that had a lifetime of memories with that patient. And what I witnessed was something completely different, of course. I was witnessing a complete disruption of a spiritual journey. It was not a journey that could be delayed forever. And ultimately, the patient is going to die, and the family is going to have to be okay with that. On some level, they're going to have to go through that grief process. But the reality is, is I was making that journey not only different, not only was I interrupting it, I was shortening it down to seconds rather than weeks, months, and years that can happen in a healthy death process. Through all of my intervention, through all of my interruption of human physiology in an effort to keep the patient alive, I was taking away their death. And that is a vicious thing to do to a human soul that's been on a long journey, a beautiful journey. They've had children, they've had community, they've had friends, they've had fellowship. They've changed lives by their presence here on earth. They've done amazing projects. They've grown gardens. They've, they've bathed in the sun on distant beaches. They've talked multiple languages. They've created song. They've created dance. They've created beauty in their lives. And in those last months of their life, I was taking away death. The journey into death has long been revered in so many cultures around the world. All of us come from a culture that revered death on some level. It was only with the Industrial Revolution where we got this heady belief that we could stave off death, expand and extend life through some sort of technologic innovation to invent a way from death. 
that we ultimately destroyed our relationship to that death. We have come to fear the death that we once revered. Nobody is taught how to have a reverent walk to the last chapter of life. Death and dying is our opportunity to integrate all that we have learned in a life that often was run at a pace that was too fast to integrate. Death and dying is the opportunity for us to pause long enough that the body sits still so that everything that we've done in our lives can catch up. Death and dying starts years before our heart stops. Death and dying is the process of the body starting to dial back. I believe this happens to a lot of people, even if it's suicide that, that chops their life span apparently short. The depression that leads up to that. I, I years ago experienced major depression myself, and I can tell you I slowed down. My personality is drive forward. My personality type and my character don't often take the time to stop and celebrate the milestones, integrate the information. I have a high tolerance for continuing to push forward no matter how exciting and how much happens in a week. I'm not good at slowing it down and letting it integrate. But I'm better than I was a decade ago. I'm certainly better than I was 15 years ago in the midst of that depression. Because I've learned that if I don't allow the slowdown to happen and I don't integrate, I don't gain wisdom. Death is the ultimate harvest of wisdom within your life. So let the slowdown happen. Aging is on purpose. The slowdown that would lead to a death event is calling in the opportunity to integrate. If we drug that journey up with the opioids or everything else, we fail to integrate. Die to yourself today. Let go of the past so that you can fill your life with the wisdom and of the integrated knowledge base that you've created over your lifetime of experience. I have never sat at the bedside of anybody who said that they wished they had worked more in their lives. But I have had innumerable conversations about how they wish they had spent more time in nature, how they had spent more time hiking and doing the things they loved, canoeing, etc., with family, with friends, with lovers. And so how should we prepare? Through my years as a hospice director, I would say that you want to start to know your options. It's a lot like getting ready to go to college or get a new job. You want to know the lay of the land when it comes to this death and dying process. In addition to those releases and surrenders of our daily death to ourselves so that we can birth another person tomorrow, we need to be prepared for the final slowdown, the final integration, the final jump from planet Earth back into the ethereal. We're going to need to do this soon, whether it come in a, a month, a year, a decade, or a lifetime, it comes fast. And so there's no time like now to start talking about it with people you love. What conscious journey would you like to take in the last slowdown? Regardless of what age it happens at, who are the people that you would want at the bedside? What are the conversations that you would like to have? What are the gifts that you would like to pass on to your friends, to your family, to your acquaintances? What things have you collected over your lifetime that you would want to give a conscious gift to while you're still conscious to do it? An interesting question, and once you've come up with that list, is why are you waiting until then? Maybe we should start gifting 
our greatest things to one another now, so that we would enrich each other's lives and be able to see the fruit of our gifts through our coexistence together in a gifting society. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But at worst case scenario, what are you going to give in that last chapter? To your grandkids, to your kids, to your lovers, to your friends, to your partners, whatever it is. What are you going to gift? And maybe it's a thing, but more likely and hopefully it's a, it's a word. It's a word of grace. It's a word of gratitude. It's a word of thanksgiving. I am hopeful that you will begin to see that you are already on the journey towards death because you were born. You were set in motion with a final, a final endpoint that your soul was aware of, I believe, as soon as it signed up. As soon as you signed up for this journey, it knew the, the beginning point and the end point and probably everything in between. And so you're on the death and dying process right now. And just as we can die to ourselves every day, we can prepare our mind for the integration, for the wisdom dump. What are we going to give to humans around us? What information do we want to pass on? What are the most important things you've learned in your lifetime that you don't want your kids not to know? Why aren't we telling them the most important thing right now? Of all the things I've learned, it's this. This is right now. Because you know that's going to change in a few months. You're going to have some new epiphany. And that's going to be the next most important thing that's, that you've ever had and that you would want to give to your kids if this was the last day you were alive. We need to communicate with one another with such reverence of the moment that we both are alive right now is a freaking miracle. It is a quantum miracle that defies mathematical possibility that all those 70 trillion cells would vibrate with 14 quadrillion mitochondria within them to release light energy so that you would be alive right now. It's impossible. It's a mathematical impossibility that you are here and you are so you are on purpose. You're here. That's the reverence we should have for one another. When we come into each other's space, listen carefully to one another, respect one another, touch one another, way more hugs, way more shoulder rubs. Let's take care of each other. Life is short. We have such a short amount of time to bless one another. Surprise somebody today with your nurture. We've come to understand doulas as an important part of the spiritual journey of a woman pregnant. So as we imagine rebirthing the future, we certainly want to have our women surrounded by doulas who are consciously arranging the spiritual and physical nature of that pregnancy and that laboring and everything else to bring the highest benefit to the child and the mother. We need our death doulas to be honored and we need more people educated as death doulas. It is a beautiful, honored thing to be at the bedside of a dying person. You will not get a richer human experience than that, I promise. So if you feel led, check out the Death Doula certification process. It's quite a journey. Be at the bedside. Be at the bedside when your, your loved ones are dying. Don't let the hospital hold you back. They can't hold you out of there. You will tell them that you have to be in there. You will get in there and you will touch that patient. You will touch that loved one with your hand. Take the gloves off and touch that patient. In their last breaths, make sure that you are right there and you are human and you are holding their face and you are saying, I love you. I see you. They may be unconscious at that moment on the physical plane, but they are never been more conscious at the spiritual moment than right then. When you let go of that body, you're going to blow your mind over what happens next.
the thing that changed my whole course of medicine in the ICUs was not the, the journey of watching my patients die. It was watching my patients come back from the other side of the veil to tell me what they had seen. There is no LSD trip that can compare to the ridiculous journeys that my patients have taken on the other side. And they come back for a moment. They come back behind the veil again into this human body and they share that with you. That is a precious thing to behold. You now have a piece of treasure that you can carry back to humanity. Tell the world the near-death stories that will unfold at the bedside of a patient who is dying well. One of my best friends, mentors, colleagues, is an extraordinary woman who lives in Santa Fe. She died 27 years ago of a massive heart attack. She was coming out of a sweat lodge ceremony in a Native American tribe down in, in, uh, in the southern United States when she suddenly developed some dizziness and uh, acute crushing chest pain, chest pressure. And she stumbled, a young man helped her up and uh, asked if he could help. She said she needed a drink of water and she needed him to help her over to a small tree. So he's helping her over to the small tree and she's reaching for it and he turns to go get the water and she collapses. She, eyesight goes black, she collapses on the ground. It's the last thought she had was reaching for that tree. Suddenly she was on the other side of the veil and she was falling off the surface of the planet and she could see her body there and she could see people running around and she was falling off the earth and, and she was seeing the mountains in the distance and she was seeing and she was accelerating into the into the darkness above her the space above her and then she was flying like wonder woman hands outstretched and she was flying through the solar system then accelerating through the universe she went on a journey that was interdimensional suddenly seeing another distant galaxy speeding towards this swirling white light the galaxy coming to sight zipping into the midst of the galaxy solar systems coming in suddenly coming at her two planets one planet moves in orbit in front of the other and there's a dark spot in the middle of that planet that suddenly feels like a gravitational force and pulls her into that planet she then lands on her feet, she's accelerating towards the surface of the planet, slows down at the last second and lands on a cliffside, on a beautiful mountain range covered with this green jungle, exquisite beauty, flora that she's never seen before. And there's a huge cave in front of her. And walking out of the cave is her son that had been killed in a car accident a few years earlier. Sudden disappearance a heartbreak that had, had been one of her highest in her life, dying at 67 from a massive heart, heart attack. Her son came out and wrapped her in his arms. She could smell his body odor. She could feel the hair on his arms across her back. She had a physical reunion communion with her son who then, in his joy of seeing his mother, said, let me show you my home and he took her into the cave and the cave was filled with foxfire just something that looks like foxfire at least these tiny little glowing worms all over the inside of the cave that lit it up like a star field and he took her down into a small clearing within the cave and there was a fire burning and he sat her down there and served her tea 
talked about why he had signed off of the life on earth and what life he had picked up. They exchanged tea, they had communion, they, they celebrated their reunion. And then he said, it's time for you to go. And she said, I don't want to leave. This is where I want to be. I have missed you so much. He said, you're not supposed to be here. We got to do this for a moment so I could just tell you that I love you. I had to disappear quickly, but I wanted to come back and tell you. I wanted this moment to happen so I could tell you not to, not to have any heartbreak. This was my journey. This is what I wanted. I'm here where I'm supposed to be. She kept insisting that she wanted to stay. And he kept saying, this is not your place. This is my journey, not yours. You have more journey to have. You're okay. You're going to be back in the body. It is your journey to stay on earth. And he gave her one more touch of the hand and she was falling off the planet as, as he let go of her hand. And he, she accelerated back out into space. More events happened in the next few minutes. But the pertinent thing is that she suddenly felt frozen in space. She stopped moving and she was terrified. It was, it was pitch black. She couldn't see any planets. She couldn't see anything. And then she suddenly heard a, a faint noise. And she just put all of her will towards moving towards the noise. And so she, she's moving consciously, intentionally towards this noise. And it's getting louder and louder. It's pitch black. And she suddenly slams into the physical body again, opens her eyes. And the Indian chief is blowing the eagle whistle in her face. The eagle whistle in this tribe was designed to help souls orient as they let go of the human body, either towards their next purpose or orient them back into the body if they are to stay. She slams back into the body with the call of the eagle whistle, takes a deep breath. The, the people around her had been doing compressions for over 20 minutes. She had been without a pulse for over 20 minutes dead. Way out in the, in the, on the reservation, there had been not time for any ambulance to arrive or the rest. They, they said that the ambulance was on the way. She said, call him off. I'm fine. I'm not going to the hospital. They said, you, you, you just died. Like, you've got to. Your heart stopped completely. We have to get you to the hospital. She said, I don't need a hospital. I just met my son, and he told me I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to die. And now 27 years later, in her late 80s, this woman has just blossomed into an extraordinary wise woman. She has had a whole nother life since then. Within weeks of, of her first death, she was called to Japan. And in an art show that she was doing of her artwork, a woman came to help her with some knee pain that she had had from a knee injury as she was getting off a train in Japan. And this woman took her into her treatment studio and introduced her to Hoshindo, which is the practice of basically acupressure plucking with a bee stinger to reset the human immune system and reduce pain, swelling, improve function. This was the science that led to acupuncture when the steel needle was invented. This Hoshindo practice over the next few days started to improve her knee pain. She came back every day for a week and got to be good friends with this woman. The woman told her that she had been waiting for over 25 years for her arrival because she had had a dream 25 years previous that her last student of Hoshin would be a woman from the West with Native American blood. And so she became a student to this woman. In her late 60s, having just died, she ended up moving to Japan for two years and was in an immersive study program and became the very first non-Japanese Hoshin Sensei in the world.
She would go on to start the Hoshindo Institute here in the United States and has tra trained many practitioners here. She has healed many a patient here. She has healed me with her practice. If she had not slowed down enough in that sweat lodge ceremony to call in a death event that she could fully integrate the previous 60-some years of her life, she wouldn't have had the space to open up a completely different career, a completely different trajectory in the last chapter of her life. She is a wonderful friend, an incredible mentor, and I would not give away a single moment that I've had with her. But I am excited for her because she, like me, is headed for another release from the body. She is again going to let go of that body and go to the other side of the veil. And I am too. And you are too. And the journeys on those sides are more beautiful than you can imagine. And so get ready. Be present. Be inspired to be at the at the death and dying process of a loved one. If you don't want to be a death doula, that's fine. But get in there and get involved. Be present. Listen. Listen to the memories that will come through at the bedside when the person is asleep or unconscious. The energy is all there. All the memories are there. You can integrate that knowledge into yourself. Be present. Heighten the vibration of humanity. The death and dying process is the penultimate journey. It is the penultimate opportunity to change your vibration. So plan it. Talk to your loved ones. Imagine it. Journal it. Write it down. What do you want the journey to be? What trips will you take on the other side of the veil? If you could travel interdimensionally to some other planet, what would you want to see? Think bigger than anybody is thinking about death today in the West. Think ceremonially, think in reverence over that last path, over the last journey. If you have felt stunted in your whole life, that you've felt unheard, unseen, you haven't been able to voice your opinion, voice your dreams, pursue your purpose, you can and will in those last minutes of life. So live like you're gonna die tomorrow and die today so you can live tomorrow. It's time for us to change our relationship to death so that we can indeed birth that future that we would all like to see. Thank you for being part of this game. I'm honored to be here with you. Okay, so Zach is passionately encouraging us to have reverence for death and by extension for life. He stokes our sense of wonder for the cycle of nature. He urges us to pursue optimal health by understanding our place in nature and as part of it. He exhorts us to heal humanity through healing ourselves. Zach believes we're at a tipping point towards either mass extinction or mass evolution, and that living our lives right now through the mindful awareness of our imminent death is one way we can achieve higher levels of consciousness and the overall well-being that will influence which way humanity tips. He's suggesting that the wisdom we gather during our lifetime, everything we do, say, and experience will shape what happens after we die for generations to come. 
It will influence those we leave behind, as well as our own soul. He's talking about karma, the idea we can transcend the cycle of life and death, aka samsara, through meditation and what he calls integration. If we live in a state of gratitude aligned with nature, we'll transcend toxic cycles, reset past traumas, negative thinking, self-doubt, and through this individual transformation, have a positive impact on the rest of humanity. He's saying we can live fulfilling lives now, today, by slowing down meditating, dancing, singing, connecting with others in deep ways, and that by doing so, our own death will be a sacred experience. He's telling us to have reverence for each other, to take care of one another, love each other well, right now, today, with urgency. That waiting until later makes no sense, because no matter how much time we have left, it's quick. He encourages us to know the lay of the land, when it comes to death and dying, that we should be prepared for this transition, to plan for it, to determine who we want to be with and what gifts we want to leave behind, how we want to contribute to the up-leveling of humanity. His message is truly one that you matter, that we all matter, that if we all do what it takes to heal, if we all commit to a life of gratitude and kindness, we are bound to create a better world for future generations, one where the earth thrives and we live in peace and harmony with each other. This is a beautifully optimistic idea that cynics love to denigrate, but it makes sense. If everyone did the things Zach talks about, the world would certainly be a better place. So why not try? Why not have it start with you? So if you want to hear more from Dr. Zach Bush, he has a full 10-day course on Commune called Vital Health, in which he examines the building blocks of human biology and how we arrived at our current misconceptions around nutrition, disease, and what it means to live well. By the end of the course, you will have a completely new view of nutrients that we've either villainized or overconsumed including cholesterol, salt, fat, carbohydrates, and proteins, as well as a better understanding of the complex relationship between human health and soil health. And even more importantly, you will see how beneath these diet dogmas and food fears is a warlike mentality that is preventing us from reaching our highest potential as humans. He dives deep into the idea that we're at the tipping point that I mentioned earlier of chronic disease and suffering. We can tip towards mass extinction or toward evolution. This course works with the possibility that we can wake up in time to change the pattern and live more consciously aligned with nature. Take his course for free with a commune membership trial available at onecommune.com slash trial. Along those lines, our next lesson is by Marianne Williamson, who is a New York Times best-selling author, spiritual thought leader, dynamic public speaker, and former presidential candidate. Her first book, A Return to Love, inspired by A Course in Miracles, thrust her into the national spotlight in 1992 when Oprah featured Marianne on her show. Since then, Marianne has never looked back, penning 12 books and inspiring millions of people to cultivate a life of love and to bring their best selves into the world. 
Here, she discusses her beliefs around who we really are, namely that we aren't our bodies and that love is the only thing that is real, that dying is not the end of life, but a continuation. So without further delay, here's Marianne Williamson on the body, sickness, and death. So from a spiritual perspective, and of course in miracles we're taught that the body is just a suit of clothes. Your physical birth is not the beginning of your life, but a continuation. And your physical death is not the end of your life, but a continuation. It says that the body is already programmed to perform perfectly and to remain in perfect health for as long a period of time as it would serve your soul growth to have a body. Except when we over-attach our sense of identification to the body, that puts a stress on the body that the body is not meant to carry. In other words, the healthiest perception of the body is the realization that we are not our bodies. And this is just one more way in which the way to be most powerful on the earth plane is to realize that your essential self is not of the earth plane. So the body is like a precious suit of clothes. The Course in Miracles says the body itself was not created by God. The body itself is a manifestation of our belief that we are separate. Remember, the body is here within this three-dimensional illusion. However, that does not mean that the body is not holy. The Course in Miracles says that anything in the material realm, the body or anything else, is holy or unholy, determined by the purpose ascribed to it by the mind. So. The body, the Course in Miracles says, is a beautiful lesson in communion until communion is. So when we see the body's purpose as being that by which we might further the healing of God's Son through the extension of kindness, compassion, help, service, tenderness, and so forth, it is a holy thing given to God for God's purposes. It is our over-attachment to it, however, which burdens the body. And of course, this makes common sense, doesn't it? We know how much sickness derives from stress, and we also know how much sickness derives from uh, environmental toxins, etc., that themselves derive from our lack of reverence for the earth. So in all ways, our sense of reverence for the food, for the sky, for the water, and for our bodies is what creates a more healthy environment. Now, as part of this, we realize then that death does not exist. So when we drop the body, the Course in Miracles says, this is not the end of life. And often when we are dealing with people who come to us for uh, counseling and so forth, we are dealing with people who have been diagnosed with life-challenging illnesses or are dealing with that topic in the life of someone that they love. And we want to help people to understand that their life is separate from the life of the body, that the life of love is the only real life. And The Course in Miracles says that a lack of love is the only real death. Sometimes people are looking for physical healing. Obviously, we are. And yet, at the same time, you as a counselor, you as a teacher, you as a prayer practitioner, can't know you're going to pray for somebody, pray for their healing, but you're not going to know what form is that healing going to take. Sometimes it's going to take the form of an actual physical healing, and sometimes it's going to take the form of their finding inner peace as they approach death. The Course in Miracles says, one day we will realize death is not the punishment, death is the reward.
You're learning how to pray with people is one of the greatest uh, services that you can perform for them. And in my book, Illuminata, there are prayers kind of for every occasion. So I recommend that you look at that in order to find words, not that you need me to provide you with words, but sometimes you want a little bit of a jump start. Prayer is the medium of miracles. So do not hesitate to pray with a person who is um, dealing with physical illness. Pray for their healing. The form of that healing might be a physical healing, and it might not be. But the healing is sure to come. We cannot pray for something without God hearing. The Course in Miracles says the Holy Spirit responds fully to our slightest invitation. Marianne's belief system echoes the teachings of many spiritual philosophies. She contends that much of our suffering stems from our over-attachment to the physical plane. It's our over-identification with, as the Taoists say, the world of the 10,000 things that results in our craving for and clinging to material objects. Marianne proffers that through meditation, service, and prayer, we can learn to inhabit the part of ourselves that is eternal, and that this in turn provides solace from the fear of death. She teaches that the purpose of our manifestation here in our ephemeral bodies is to heal ourselves and others through kindness, service, and love, the only real true thing in life. And ultimately, it's a fear of death that drives so much escapism and self-destructive behavior that causes us to miss out on our own very lives. So many of our societal norms have their provenance in fear. We spend our lives striving for status and financial wealth, empty pursuits based on our fear of judgment, rather than spending our lives in a state of gratitude, focusing on what actually matters, which is love for ourselves and others, love for the earth, and reverence for the miracle of nature. It's this basic misconception that we're somehow separate from nature and from each other that leads to societal systems that result in so much global immiseration. Now, I understand that for many, Having faith in the idea that a part of us lives on after we leave our bodies is too far-fetched and lacks evidence. It is quite possible that consciousness is coterminous with death. However, it's also quite possible that consciousness is not just a product of a fortuitous combination of atoms in our brains, and that there is a broader collective awareness to be found on the other side. If you find the word God challenging, if you struggle with what Marianne is saying because you want hard evidence, I get it. This, after all, is the ultimate question, the hard problem of consciousness. And I wouldn't trust anyone who claims to have the answer. As Lao Tzu famously wrote, those who say do not know, and those who know do not say. You must find the concepts and the language that best works for you. The self-examined life is one in which you define your conception of God, spirit, Brahman, the Tao, nature, the Dharmakaya, or whatever semiotic you choose. You create meaning and purpose in a manner that helps you live your Dharma. 
So if Marianne's terminology doesn't resonate, I encourage you to look for the intention behind the words and build from there. What she's pointing to is beyond words. What she's pointing to is a way of living and dying, filled with love and beauty and joy, meaning, kindness, tenderness, and peace. The great Afghani poet Rumi wrote, There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are a thousand ways to go home again. At Commune, we believe there are multiple paths that lead to a life of what the Greeks called eudaimonia, or what we might call well-being. And Marianne's approach is but one that we offer on our platform. Another approach that might speak to you is a brilliant philosophy of ethics founded in the 3rd century BC called Stoicism. Stoicism is rife with wise aphorisms, but if there is a single quotation that epitomizes Stoicism, it may be this one from Marcus Aurelius, who served as the emperor of Rome from 161 to 180 AD. Objective judgment, now at this very moment. Unselfish action, now at this very moment. Willing acceptance, now at this very moment of all external events. That's all you need. Next is an excerpt from a 10-day course that I lead called Stoic Meditations. In this short contemplation, I introduce the concept of memento mori, literally remembering your own mortality, a practice that results in a gratitude for living. As always, enjoy this course and Marianne's in commune membership. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial to try all of our courses for free for 14 days. In his meditations, Marcus Aurelius wrote, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Memento Mori is the practice of acknowledging your mortality or literally in Greek, remembering death. This practice is central to numerous philosophical and spiritual traditions, including, but not limited, to just Stoicism. In Buddhism, there is a practice known as Maranasati, Sanskrit for mindfulness of death. The 11th century Buddhist scholar Atisha developed contemplation specifically focused on this death awareness. And these meditations concentrated on death's inevitability, its unpredictability, and its many causes, and remind us that at the time of our death, our material resources are of no use, and even our loved ones cannot keep us from passing. In Greek antiquity, the philosopher Democritus built perspective and resilience by going into solitude and frequenting tombs. There is even an entire genre of 17th century art called vanitas that is designed to remind the viewer of their own mortality. Still life with a skull, a famous piece by the French painter Philippe de Champagne, features the three essentials of existence. The tulip, representing life, the skull, signifying death, and the hourglass indicating time. Now, meditating on your own mortality is only morbid 
if you fail to see the point. It is a praxis for creating priority, meaning, perspective, and urgency. Death doesn't make life pointless, but rather purposeful. We've been gifted this precious, beautiful, imperfect, and fleeting life. What will we make of it? Will we waste our time on the trivial and the vain, or will we live courageously and strive to align our actions with our highest principles? The good news, we don't have to die to do this, but remembering that someday we will serves as a reminder to bring us closer to living the life we actually want. Okay, so here's the praxis. You've likely engaged in this thought experiment, perhaps over a glass of wine or three. What would you do if you only had six months to live? What relationships would you mend? To whom would you apologize? What new experiences would you try? Create an inventory of the things you would do if death was imminent. Actually write them down. This is your new to-do list. Don't fret the small stuff. Returning emails or playing Minecraft can wait. As Seneca wrote, let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. The awareness of our inevitable and unpredictable death should serve as motivation to live a full and a virtuous life. Welcome back. If you found that practice enlightening, then I encourage you to check out my full 10-day series of Stoic Meditations in Commune Membership. I offer an overview on Stoicism alongside exercises that are framed by the three central Stoic disciplines, perception, action, and will. By refining the discipline of perception, you find mental clarity. By engaging in action that is ethical and just, you find purpose. And by exercising will, you learn how to identify and manage the things you cannot control and find the resilience to deal with life's challenges. Lastly, we'll conclude this masterclass with a short guided meditation by David Kessler designed to help you sit with the idea of your own inevitable death. Here's David. I'd love to do a guided visualization with you. So join me if you would, get comfortable where you are, whatever that looks like for you, and close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and join me on this little journey. I want you to picture yourself in a park. I use Central Park in New York, but feel free to grab any park just need some sidewalks and a bench. Think of yourself in this park. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining, but it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It feels just right. And you're walking through the park 
and you see many other people walking, enjoying their day. Some are riding a bike, some are walking a dog. You continue through this park and you see a bench. You decide to sit down on the bench. As you sit on the bench, you just begin to people watch. You see all kinds of people around. Some people are rushing, some couples strolling, some people with their kids, all these people going through this park on this beautiful day. You notice a person in the distance that catches your gaze. It's not someone you know. It could be a man, it could be a woman, up to you. Just look at this man or woman who you see walking. They're walking in your direction. However they look, they might be young, they might be old. You decide. As they get closer, you see them coming close and they say to you, may I sit down on the bench? And you say yes, and they sit down next to you. You feel a very strange sensation as they sit next to you. You feel something you've never felt before, something very different. Suddenly, something inside you tells you, this is death. Death is sitting next to you. As you sit there and realize this, just know this is your moment now to ask death anything you want. Ask death any question you may have. What do you want to know from death? What don't you understand about death? Death looks like it's willing to answer your questions. So take a moment to just sit there with death and ask your question. Listen for what death has to say to you. After you've asked and received an answer, watch death as it begins to stand up and it tells you, I'm glad we had this time together. It is not your time now, but we will see each other someday. And then you see death walk away. You might want to write down what death said. You know, it's interesting to think how 
death lives in the world with us. And we fight it and get angry, and it's our enemy. But we don't often just have a conversation, just like you did today. I always joke at the end of this, if this had been your real death, a real visit with death, you would have been given more instructions. All right. I hope that was helpful. Thanks so much.